Let's pray together. Father, we just sang a, a hymn of repentance. We pray that those words that fell from our lips were not just so many syllables of utterance, but expressed the, the true desire of our heart to give praise to the one who gave himself for us, the one who by his grace points out our sin, he who by his grace gives us faith to trust and repentance to turn away from our sin, that same grace which renews hope within our hearts, that faith, that, that grace that enables our faith to demonstrate itself in genuine works that demonstrate the power of the blood of Christ in our lives. So, Lord, we would pray that this hour you would hear us, we would come with humble and broken hearts before you, you would send forth your Spirit, your Spirit into our hearts, enable us to cry, Abba, Father, and to pray, O Father, speak to me through your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, though just for a moment, to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and then we're going to turn back to the book of Jonah. Romans 10, verses 11 through 15. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And of course, the hymn here is referring to God, especially the person of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Let's address, address our God once more in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would take this scriptural truth and as it is exegeted in our study this morning, that if there be any here, Jew or Gentile, indeed that includes all people. We pray that if they are without hope and without God in this world, you would grant them faith in Him, that faith in Him that does not disappoint, that faith that saves, that faith that makes new creatures of old, that faith that changes the course of our lives, that faith that puts us upon the road to glory. Lord, grant us that faith this morning, if we are without it, and if we do have it, we pray that you would strengthen it as we focus our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Jonah. 
We've been studying Jonah for several weeks, and if you happen to be looking for last Lord's Day's message on Sermon Audio, you won't find it. You know, it doesn't help to, to carry this thing around and wear a lapel mic if you don't turn the thing on. Well, I'm pretty sure the thing is on today. Well, in chapter 1, we considered Jonah's commission, how God commissioned him and how he disobeyed and how he ran away and how he sought escape from God, asylum, as it were, in a foreign land. He didn't want to preach to the Ninevites, and so God dealt with him on a ship. And finally, he was cast into the waves, and he was swallowed by a giant fish, And we read in chapter 2 of Jonah's prayer, God deals with him severely, but deals with him by severe grace. Jonah struggles between faith and trust. And finally, when God has brought him to the point of readiness to return to his commission, he has the fish belch him out onto dry land. And after that, God recommissions Jonah. And therefore, we come to chapter, we came to chapter 3, and we looked at Uh, Jonah's recommission, we began to last Lord's Day. We saw Jonah's return to his commission. We saw that he was, that God has proved himself in the first three verses to be the God of second chances. We saw God's renewed charge to Jonah. He restored him, and then he sent him on his way. And last time, we looked at crucial tests Jonah faced in returning to his commission in verses 2 through 4. Jonah faced a special trials to prove that his recommission, he was ready to return and to go to Nineveh and preach. We saw Jonah's duty to wait for his message, tested his obedience to God. Jonah's duty to preach to a wicked audience tested his confidence in God. And Jonah's duty to preach a severe message tested his witness for God. Let's look at these verses. Let me read them in their context. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, this morning we come to consider Jonah's recommission. We saw his return to his commission, crucial tests he faced returning to his commission. And now we come to Jonah's recommission, the Ninevites' response to his preaching in verses 4 through 9. We'll pick up in verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let not man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Now, this morning as we consider Jonah's recommission, two points before coming to some concluding application. And our first point is this. Let us consider the Ninevites' believing response to Jonah's preaching. We read in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed in God through Jonah's preaching. He was going about throughout the city. He had one message to preach, and it was a message of judgment, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, commentators argue whether, whether Jonah extrapolated upon that, whether he preached grace as well as judgment. I tend to be more of the mind that what we have here is not just a summary of what Jonah preached, but a statement of what he preached. God had pronounced judgment upon the city, and he was to go faithfully to preach that message to his bewildered audience. Let us notice first what the Ninevites' believing response in Jonah's preaching did not display. We read that they believed in God through his preaching. Well, the first thing is they didn't mock the preacher. There's no indication that those that heard Jonah's preaching mocked him or they regarded his message with contempt. It would appear that they gave a very careful hearing to what he said. Their response, I think, indicates that it shines light upon their, their response to his word, their actions that followed. It was hellfire preaching coming from Jonah's lips. But they didn't mock him. What kind of crack-brained Jewish preacher comes over here and tells us our business? No, they didn't say that. And they didn't regard his preaching as hellfire. What? What right does he have here to come and to tell us about fiery doom for us from the hand of God? We don't see that. Furthermore, they didn't disregard his message simply because it came from a foreign God. It came from Jehovah. He's representing the one true and living God. The God, not only of Israel, but the God of the nations. And they didn't turn him away and say, well, you preach to us in the name of our God and we might listen. We're not going to listen. You preach in the name of this Jehovah. No, they listened. They gave careful attention to what he preached. Thirdly, they didn't dismiss his message as irrelevant or outdated 
or impractical. Yes, they might have been sophisticated sinners. They were involved in all kinds of unrighteousness, as we saw last week. But they didn't dismiss his message as irrelevant. It applied to them. It wasn't outdated. This was a message for all men at all times. They didn't consider it impractical. No, they read their own sinfulness in Jonah's preaching. It addressed them personally and practically. Furthermore, they didn't excuse their sin. They didn't deny their guilt. They didn't shift their blame. And that's what we commonly do. We'll try to excuse our sin away. Everybody else does it, don't they? Or deny our guilt. It's really not that bad after all, is it? Or they shift their blame. I'm not really so bad. It's that guy over there. They didn't do any of that. Furthermore, they didn't put off believing in God until a more convenient time. Uh, we'll, we'll think about this later. They were like those on Mars Hill. They listened to the Apostle Paul and they said, oh, well, maybe we'll think about that. We're like Festus who put off Paul. I'll call you at a more convenient time. No, they listened right now. Notice, secondly, some facts about Nineveh's belief in God through Jonah's preaching. The Ninevites' belief in God was prompted by a proper fear of God's just punishment. They heard his message. You see, each of us have an amen corner in our conscience. We may try to stiff arm the preaching of the gospel, the announcement of God's judgment, but we have an amen corner that says, yes, what that man is saying is right. I don't like it. I hate it. I don't want to hear him. Get him out of here. But there's an amen to what is said. And that's what makes us nervous. We've got a conscience. We've got the government of God set up in our heart. And so when we hear the truth, we recognize it. And when we hear judgment, we say a silent, well, amen, I don't want to go to judgment, but what this man says with me is true. The Ninevites' consciences were awakened by God's word. Furthermore, the Ninevites' belief in God revealed their awakened sense of the evil of their sin. Before, they looked at it rather lightly and flippantly. They might have paraded it and promoted it. But now, they feel the evil of their sin. They know they deserve God's wrath. Furthermore, the Ninevites' belief in God produced a visible brokenness for sin, there was spiritual mourning. They couldn't get away from their bad conscience. There's nowhere that they could run. No place to hide. And so they exchanged their ordinary or festive clothing for rough garb that pictured their uncomfortableness in their sin. They donned, they dressed in sackcloth, illustrating their humiliation for their sin. It wasn't now we don our gay apparel. No, now they put on very uncomfortable clothing. 
Thirdly, upon hearing the people's response to Jonah's preaching, Nineveh's king issued an edict ordering all the people to humble themselves, to cry out to God, to turn from their evil ways, even requiring their stock animals to display these tokens of repentance by fasting from food and water and dressing themselves in sackcloth. That was not entirely uncommon in the ancient Mideast. I read where a man, in repenting of his sin, he, shore, he, he sheared his animals to show that he was broken for his sin. Middle Eastern people are very demonstrable in their, their actions, in, of their feelings. They wear it on their sleeve. Furthermore, and finally here, the king publicly proclaimed his hope and the hope of the Ninevites that God would change his mind. He would turn away from his just wrath and deliver them from the due punishment of their sins. Who knows? God may turn and relent. It's not, who knows? God may realize that we're not really as bad as he says we are. He'll lighten up a little bit. He'll just, you know, boys will be boys. No. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. The king expressed the heart of the Ninevites, saying, Would to God that he wouldn't visit us with the wrath that is due us for our sins. You see, in each man's heart, yes, there is an amen corner, but there's also a desire for self-preservation, physically and spiritually. We don't want to go to that place we know that we justly deserve. So we've considered the Ninevites' believing response to Jonah's preaching. Let us notice, secondly, let us contemplate practical lessons from the Ninevites' response to Jonah's preaching. First of all, like the Ninevites, each one of us needs to turn from our terrible predicament as desperately guilty sinners before God. We're not any better off than those Ninevites were. We are guilty of sin. We deserve the wrath of God. We can't excuse it away. We can't decriminalize those things that God says are worthy of death. We can't do that. We may try to do that, but we're just whistling in the dark. And quite frankly, we know it. That's why we don't like to hear preaching. If it wasn't true, we'd just dismiss it. It's, it's just crack-brained. What's that person thinking, talking about hell? We don't like to hear it because we know it's true. Don't tell me those things. I don't want to hear it. Brethren, we are born guilty of Adam's first sin. We wouldn't know that without the Bible. And so we accumulate further guilt that we know before God by sinning every day, breaking His holy law, all of the commandments we break, if not with our hands, with our hearts. 
Brethren, we need to hear preaching, the preaching of God's law that condemns our sin so that we may believe God, trust Christ, and repent of our sin and seek God's pardon. We need to hear the bad news so the good news will come with all of its power upon our hearts. You see, without the bad news, the good news isn't really good. Good people don't need to hear the gospel. The gospel ain't for good people, it's for bad people. And it's not the people out there, it's the people in here. Secondly, how unlike the Ninevites we are. They were abject pagans without a Bible, without churches, without gospel preachers. Dear ones, how we take for granted the immeasurable privileges of having a Bible, and more than one. In fact, we might be able to go home and not lay our hands on every Bible that's in our house. Of living in a country with a Christian heritage, we're fastly leaving it in the dust as we run pell-mell toward the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're surrounded by biblical churches and gospel preachers. You can turn on the TV, you can go on YouTube, you can go to Sermon Audio. Brethren, we are a spiritually rich nation. And there's no reason why we should live as paupers when we have this embarrassment of riches in the gospel and in churches and in Christian friends. Imagine yourself a Ninevite hearing the voice of Almighty God for the first time speaking to you through the preaching of a man vomited from the belly of a fish trumpeting the terrible truth of your impending doom. Imagine that. He bears all the marks of being in a fish. He's probably bleached from the stomach juices of that fish. They probably heard about him by the time he got there. Of the ship and being cast overboard and being swallowed and burped out on the beach. They, they heard about that. So they're prepared for him in a sense. So just the look of the man reinforced the terror of the message. Let me ask you, if you were a Ninevite then, would you have ears to hear? Now we're sitting in our sanitized pews and we have all kind of blessing. But do we take to heart the blessing of hearing the gospel, even hearing words of judgment to prepare us to flee, to flee from the wrath to come? But brethren, my description of 
the Ninevites. That, that, that's not you here this morning. You've maybe heard God's judgment pronounced and His gospel proclaimed countless times. In fact, you've heard it so many times, your ears have gotten dull to its piercing message. You are truly among the most privileged people in the world. All of us are, and yet we don't know it. But let me ask you, what have you done with your gospel privileges? Will the Ninevites stand up on Judgment Day and condemn you because you refused to repent at the preaching of something greater than Jonah, even the Lord Jesus Christ? We're reminded once more of, of the truth that with greater light comes greater responsibility to turn from our sins to Christ. The author of Pilgrim's Progress warns that there's a door to hell from the very gate of heaven. It is your duty to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near. He may not always be found and he won't always be near. Do you recognize the day of your visitation? To use the language of Jonah's greater son. Brethren, Jonah preached but a few hours in Nineveh, in, the, uh, in Nineveh, and the city repented. You've heard the gospel, maybe since the dawning of your consciousness, and yet you refuse to believe God? Why is this? Let me ask you, do you have a death wish? Do you want God to judge you? Do you wish to be overthrown by the wrath of God, to be damned in the fires of hell for all eternity? Why will you not come to Christ so that you might have life, life eternal, life indeed, life forever? Thirdly, the Ninevites remind us that faith comes by hearing, in hearing by the Word of God. They didn't have Bibles, they didn't have churches, they didn't have YouTube preachers. They might have heard of the Jews, no doubt they did, because they'd been visiting them and plundering them. They knew about the temple. But they hadn't heard the word of God. Now they've heard the word of God from the mouth of God's prophet. These pagan Assyrians were warned by only a few words from Jonah about their impending doom, and yet they believed. Contrast their belief with the rich man in Jesus' story. During his life, he was surrounded by the means of grace. He had a Bible. Indeed, Abraham said to him, They have a Bible. They, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man had these things, and 
They didn't profit him anything. He either didn't read it or he didn't read it with faith. He didn't believe what he read. And so far as we can tell, he's forever in hell. I don't think that was a parable Jesus was telling there in the 16th chapter of Luke. So we know for a fact that his tongue is still parched. And he's in agony in that flame. Let me ask you, you hear the gospel. You hear it week by week. But do you heed its message of mercy? You don't just hear of judgment. You also hear of mercy. Fourthly, the Ninevites teach us that we need to show appropriate evidence of our faith and repentance. This they did by their dress and diet. Their humble dress indicated their soul humiliation. Their fasting displayed their intense concentration upon their sins and need for God's mercy. We're not going to eat. We're going to pray. We're going to pray fervently. May God not judge us. May He withdraw His burning anger from us. Brethren, we may not wear sackcloth and fast. But do we look to outward religious things such as church attendance or giving charitable contributions or praying or maybe hanging around with Christian friends or listening to sermons or Christian radio, which are good things in themselves. But do we look to them as proof that we believe in Christ and have repented of our sins? Outward show without an inward change only further damns us because we're hypocrites, if that's the case. We must produce fruits of our faith and demonstrate our repentance, and these the Ninevites did. They were commanded to turn away from their wicked way and the violence that was in their hands. John the Baptist warned against outward show without inward change and a corresponding change in lifestyle. Baptism without repentance is a sham. True repentance produces obvious fruits. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. Jump in at verse 2, and I'm going to read this section down through verse 18. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, <clears throat> preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every ravine. Ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He therefore began saying to the multitudes, 
who were going out to be baptized by him in preparation for the coming of this one, the Messiah to whom they were looking, John being the forerunner, pointing toward him, readying the people for him. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, you see, we have insulation from the wrath of God. We're the special people of God. All we have to do is look down to our private parts. We've been circumcised. Therefore, we're safe. We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham... And also, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Apparently, that word got through. And the multitudes. John speaks to various groups here. He speaks to the multitudes, the tax gatherers, and the soldiers. And the multitudes were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? How can we bear the fruit of repentance so that our tree, as it were, isn't cut down and cast into the fire? Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to, to them, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. In other words, be generous with the gifts that God has given you. And let him who has food do likewise. Be generous with the good gifts of God. You who are tight-fisted, stingy, show that you've repented by your generosity. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. In other words, don't skim off the top. Don't, don't extort money from people. Just take the taxes they've been ordered to pay and don't Take more. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? These soldiers are, were likely Roman soldiers. They're down there watching the people, listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. And God's speaking to them. And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force. That's common among soldiers. They go into a town. Or among the people, or accuse anyone falsely, make false accusations, or and be content with your wages. That's why they extort money, because they're not content with their wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ. John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Concluding statement. So with many other exhortations, also he preached the gospel to the people. 
He's calling them to repentance. And brethren, repentance is part of the gospel. So notice a few important practical points about belief in, in God and repentance from sin. First of all, belief in God is inseparable from repentance from sin. You can't have one without the other. There's a common gospel going out today that says repentance. Well, that was for Israel. No, just believe. Don't repent. That's a work. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what Jesus teaches, what John teaches, what Paul teaches, or any of the other writers of Scripture. Brethren, faith in Jesus and repentance from sin are two, two sides of the same coin of conversion. You can't have one without the other. It's the currency of conversion, faith and repentance. So the Apostle Paul could speak after faithfully discharging his duty as a gospel minister, preacher, and apostle to the Ephesian elders. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, both testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we just read this morning from the second of James, faith without works is dead. Second, notice again that those who truly believe the gospel and repent of their sins will demonstrate their faith and repentance with visible fruits. If they were selfish, they'll be generous. If they were extorters, they'll be honest. We will show the, the fruits of righteousness in our lives if we truly repent. Brethren, saving faith and repentance are visible graces. The king of the Ninevites commanded his people to demonstrate their belief in God, not just by donning sackcloth and denying food. That may make them hungry and uncomfortable, but that's no clear indication that their hearts have been changed. No, we look for simple, simple ways to appease God. No, God says there has to be a radical change within us. No, he told them to turn away from their wicked and violent ways. They had the commandments written upon their hearts. They were living in rebellion against all the commandments for righteousness before men and righteousness before God. They were violent, wicked, promiscuous people. So John the Baptist commanded ordinary Israelites, tax collectors, and soldiers to show their repentance and faith by turning from their characteristic sins. Thirdly, preaching faith and repentance must also include a warning to those who refuse to believe that hell awaits them if they continue in their sin and unbelief. Brethren, faithful pastors preach not only faith in Christ, but also repentance from sin. And they also warn their hearers that hell awaits them if they don't repent and believe the gospel. It's not just information giving. It's exhortation. Do believe in Jesus Christ and live. Turn from your sins. 
The Bible doesn't teach us easy believism. Just nod your head and accept Jesus and live the rest of your life without any real change. Old things pass away, new things come. You're a new creature in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, any so-called belief in God that does not lead to repentance from sin is a sham. And yet how many people say, I believe in God, and yet they live wicked lives. They live just like those that make no profession of faith at all. They're known by their characteristic sins, and yet they say, I believe in Jesus. That makes a mockery of regeneration, does it not? Brethren, this faith is nothing but the faith of demons. The devils believe in God, but they don't turn from their sin. Their belief in God doesn't save them. In fact, their belief in God impacts them far more profoundly than many who profess faith in God. You see, the demons believe and they shudder. They shake in fear, knowing that their judgment is coming. Be sure of it. Saving faith and repentance are life-changing graces, inseparable. They're Siamese twins joined at the heart. The king of Nineveh believed this, and yet I fear some, maybe even here, have nothing more than the faith of demons. What is repentance unto life? The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. They use the word paradigm shift today. That's exactly what happens in conversion. You turn from where you were going in the way of sin, you turn to your face toward Christ in heaven. Fifth, saving belief in God produces an earnest hope that God will pardon sin and avert His just judgment. We see this in verse 9. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we shall not perish. But notice, too, that hope flowing from saving faith and repentance makes no demands upon God. They don't demand that God not visit them with His judgment, but oh, that He would not show it to us. Would He show mercy and not judgment? Oh, Lord, we pray for grace and not justice. So we sang, My transgressions I confess, grief and guilt my soul oppress. I have sinned against thy grace and provoked thee to thy face. I confess thy judgment just, speechless I thy mercy trust. Broken, humbled to the dust, by thy wrath and judgment just. Let my contrite heart rejoice and in gladness hear thy voice. From my sins, O oh, hide thy face, 
Blot them out in boundless grace. That's a cry of every truly penitent heart. <coughs> we read about the Thessalonians. Paul says of others, he says they reported how they turned from God or to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what repentance is. Brethren, as we conclude, and may God get us thinking in, in, toward our next study in Jonah, I pose the question some of you might be thinking. Was the faith and repentance of the Ninevites unto life? Was it a work of saving grace? There is, after all, a temporary faith. There's a counterfeit that does not save and false repentance that is only worldly sorrow that produces death, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. <clears throat> now we'll seek to answer this question next time as we ponder the greatness of God's mercy to the Ninevites. Now as we come to a few concluding questions, I, I ask you, do you demonstrate the fruits of faith and repentance in your life? I'm not saying do you demonstrate them perfectly, but do you demonstrate them Really? No, all of us who are true Christians say, my, my faith isn't as strong as I want it to be, and my repentance isn't as thoroughgoing as I want it to be. I want to be thorough in both. I'm not satisfied with my present attainments in grace and in fighting my sin. No, but do you demonstrate the fruits of faith and repentance, or are you deluded with a sham repentance and a presumption rather than saving faith? Do you remember what Jesus said? Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, are saved from the wrath of God and will enter the kingdom of God. But those who show they believe in Him by turning from their sin and doing the will of God as obeying His word. So concluding applications this morning. First of all, that God sent Jonah to warn wicked pagan Ninevites of their impending doom warns us that our sins likewise deserve God's just punishment. <clears throat> We're not any different than they are. We live in a different place and a different time, but we both come forth from the womb speaking lies. Brethren, lest you pride yourself that you are in a better position than these wicked Assyrians, ask God to give you a revealing peak within the foul chambers of your own heart. Your sins may not be as flagrant, but they are no less deadly and deserving of eternal punishment than the sins of the Ninevites. And I fear that some here need to be saved not only from their sin, but from their righteousness. The humbled publican who confessed his sins was justified before God. But the proud Pharisee who paraded his righteousness before God, he left and ultimately went to hell. Jesus said, I came not to call the what? The righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. Those who are healthy need no physician, but those who are sick. May the Lord open your eyes to, die, to your true diagnosis before Christ. And brethren, we should take it as a kindness 
and not today, as they say, a hate crime? When pastors and other Christians point out our guilt before God and our liability to divine punishment and warn us against dying in our sin and to turn to Jesus Christ and be saved, that is a mercy. That is a kindness. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, there's mercy and judgment in that verse. Secondly, that God graciously warned the Ninevites of His certain punishment warns you to immediately seek His mercy if you would escape the fires of hell. Flee to Christ if you would be saved. Let me ask you, if you knew that your house was on fire, would you sit comfortably in your easy chair? Somebody's beating on the door. Say, run for your life. Get out of there. Would you sit there and just allow the burning house to come down around your ears? Why then do you not flee to Jesus Christ from God's coming wrath upon you for your sins? He is a suicidal fool who tempts God to damn him by remaining in his sins. Unlike the Ninevites, you have a promise of God's mercy if you seek his forgiveness. He holds out a pardon signed in the blood of Christ. The question is, will you take it? Therefore, thirdly and finally, that the Ninevites believed God and turned from their sins urges you to believe and turn from your sins. I dare say a number of former Ninevites are here in this room this morning. I certainly include myself as one of them. And will you not with me gladly testify that God has shown you mercy when you fled for refuge to Jesus Christ? Did He not receive you with open arms? You see, there's still room at the cross for you, if that is not your testimony, will you sink into hell when you can sing the praises of a, of a rescuing God? This God pleads with you, for why will you die? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. And these same Regenerated Ninevites will tell you that pardon brings unspeakable peace. You're at peace with God, and now you have the peace of God. And it's unutterably wonderful. Who can describe its dimensions and its effects? Oh, may be able, you be able to raise your voice with the redeemed who delight in the Lord. As the hymn writer puts it, Praise my soul, the God that sought thee, wretched wanderer far astray, found thee lost and kindly, brought thee from the paths of death away. Praise with love's devoutest feeling, him who saw thy guilt-born fear, and the light of hope revealing, bade the blood-stained cross appear. Praise thy Savior God that drew thee to that cross new life to give, held a blood-sealed pardon to thee, bade thee look to him and live. 
Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee, rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee, praise the grace that whispered peace. Oh, may God's threats rouse you from your sinful slumber and may his promised grace whisper peace to your troubled soul. And he will do so when you turn from your sins to believe in Jesus Christ who promises to save every sinner who comes to him and will in no wise cast them out. Come to me, all who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Oh, our Father who is in this room that doesn't need to hear this for the first time and the thousandth time, that there's a God in heaven who justly demands righteousness of us and we've run as fast as our feet will take us into the pathways of wickedness. We thank you for the Jonas that you've sent into our lives that have pronounced judgment coming and have proclaimed Jesus Christ who came to absorb your wrath and to take our judgment so that when we believe upon him and turn from our sins we have gracious and everlasting salvation from the wrath to come. Oh Lord, we pray if there's any here this morning, older or younger, those that may even be raised in Christian homes that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, we pray that you would have gracious dealings with them. You would open their eyes to see their sin and open their eyes to see the Savior looking away from the one to the other. Oh, save them, we pray this day. Oh, might there be some who say, I heard that message. It made me feel uncomfortable. But I closed with Jesus Christ. I saw him whom, who loves my soul. I saw him bleeding and dying. I saw him rising from the grave. I see him seated at the right hand of God, dispensing with both hands grace and mercy. And he gave me those things, and he made me a new creature. And now I'm happy, forever happy, and headed for heaven. Oh, might that be the testimony of even one here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.